0: Welcome to the Sense of Soul podcast. We are your hosts, Shannon and Mandy. Grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's
1: time to awaken. Today we have with us Miguel Sancho. He is an Emmy Award winning television producer. For years, he developed series and specials for A&E. And for seven years, he helped run the ABC Primetime News Magazine 2020. Prior to that, he was the investigative producer at 2020 and CBS News 48 Hours. He was an executive producer for the History Channel's new series, The Proof is Out There, Exploring Mysterious Phenomena. But he is here today to talk about his new book, More Than You Can Handle a Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and the Cutting Edge Medicine That Cured the Incurable, an incredible story about his family's search for a cure for their son's deadly immune disease. Thank you so very much for joining us today.
2: Well, it's great to meet you and thank you so much for having me on. I was just checking out some episodes of your podcast and uh, you guys are doing great stuff. So I'm, I'm honored to be
0: included. Well, we are more than honored to have you on. We were so excited to see you come across our email. Oh, my pleasure. So I was able to listen to your book on Audible. That was nice,
1: got to know your voice. And you're funny. And I got that from your book for sure.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we try. You know, the, 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 that's what I always tell people like reading the books. It's, it's, it's not supposed to be like just eating a bowl of uncooked broccoli. I mean, it is the book and the author have a certain obligation to entertain. I don't, yeah, I try to be sometimes. I'm not sure if I succeed every time, but uh, yeah, and I'll be serious.
1: You're a great storyteller. Yeah. Is this because you grew up telling a lot of stories or?
2: Well, um, it's just because I've had a lot of practice uh, over the years writing bad scripts for television stories, and you just learn the hard way that, you know, some things work and some things don't. I will say this, I think people sometimes mystify the act of storytelling, the act of writing, and I do believe it is a technique that most people can learn if you just, you know, dedicate yourself to it and remember good stuff that you've seen and frankly rip off, uh, other good ideas and other, you know, cute turns of phrase that you can use like, like you normally would for, you know, making cocktail conversation or something. It's, uh, really just a question of, like I said, making sure that you're not shortchanging the reader, you know, on every page that you're understanding there's an obligation to pull the reader across to the end of the book. Right. I mean, I don't finish a lot of books for that very reason. I mean, I start a lot of books and if I'm not like totally hooked by like page 75, you know, I'll, I'll go do something else. I'll go start another book or I'll, you know, look at my phone. It really is, again, the responsibility of the author to engage the reader in such a way that they're, they they want to see what's next. Yeah. You know, I'm a journalist. and I've made my living kind of focusing a certain degree of kind of critical facilities and unbiased, somewhat aggressive reporting at times on other people and their faults and their sh- shortcomings. So one of the exercises of the book, both for the sake of the reader and for the sake of the author in this case, was to see if I could actually train those same unflinching critical facilities on myself and on my own shortcomings, on my own imperfections, and report it honestly in such a way that the reader would know that they're getting an authentic account uh, without trying to be too sentimental.
1: You have wrote so many stories and produced so many things on the world, but this was your story have you ever done anything like
2: that before? Excellent question. So the answer is no, I've never published anything before other than, you know, Facebook posts about myself, that is. And I think that's another danger that people sometimes have when they're moving from, say, journaling or, you know, blogging or doing Facebook posts where, you just kind of assume that your followers or what have you are going to be interested in anything about you. When you're writing something for a broader audience, you just have to constantly be taking very humble attitude about the idea that just because a sentence begins with the word I really doesn't mean that it's interesting to anybody else other than yourself. Just because we experienced something doesn't necessarily mean that the whole world is going to want to uh, hear it. And, you know, I've been, I've been that guy like at a party who's like running on and on about some story without kind of (laughs) registering whether or not anybody wants to hear more. And so I really wanted to also economize it. I have to say one of my greatest pieces of good luck with this thing was uh, an editor who was of the same mind, like, you know, and I was really happy actually a lot of the things that she wanted to cut out were just kind of excess navel gazing and uh, talking about myself because yes, I'm in the story and the story is told in the first person, but it's not just about me. It's about right family dynamics. It's about other families going through similar challenges. It's about, you know, these amazing doctors and nurses who are trying to help um, these families and, and solve these intractable medical uh, mysteries. That was kind of the juggling act of this book, like how much is going to be me and how much is going to be other people's stories where I can actually give them the voice and give them the the attention that they deserve too.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a massive shift going from writing about the outside world to having to take a moment to go inward and actually expose things about yourself. How did it feel?
2: I'm gonna be honest with you, Mandy. There was a fair amount of terror. <laughs> there was a fair amount of days when I wanted the book to just go away. And and the reason is, you know, you don't know how things are gonna be perceived. It's easy to get misinterpreted, it's easy to get willfully misinterpreted these days. So, And some of the things that happen in the book are pretty embarrassing, let's face it. I was very conscientious of the fact that the audience might not be that sympathetic, and it's we live in kind of a sharing, perhaps an oversharing kind of culture, so there's a certain tolerance for this kind of thing, but how far does that tolerance go, right? A lot of the time I was thinking to myself, this event in my life, in our lives, in our family's history was important, and I feel like people should know about it. But on the other hand, it's kind of over, and part of me just wants to be completely done with it, and move on and pretend like it never happened, sweep it under the rug. But ultimately, I decided that I would feel much, much worse about not finishing the book
0: than I would feel about finishing the book. And was there some healing in it when you were able to put it out on paper and, and see all that you'd been through? Were you able to sit with that and surrender to it and let it go, do you feel like?
2: Yeah. And those are some of the the best words and kind of languages and and, and terms to apply to this experience. Because of course, there's all sorts of um, clinical psychological studies about the therapeutic aspects of writing for oneself. So there was that kind of personal part of it. But the other part of it was, I do actually think there were things that happened to us that are worth sharing for other families and certain situations right so the book isn't just a memoir it really is also supposed to be something of a how-to guide or maybe a guide of do's and don'ts including some very colorful examples of what happens if you uh, do the don'ts and i think that you know some of the best feedback i've received about the book since it was published is from other families who have said we've been in this situation we've been the ones staring at the ceiling in a sleepless night We've been the ones looking in the mirror in the morning of a day that we don't think we can face and say, this is more than I can handle. And just knowing that this book gave some, however marginal, however incremental help to families in those situations, meant a lot. It meant that it was worth doing.
1: You talk about being vulnerable, but there's so much value in that. And Mandy and I, that's why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You had to implement mindfulness and like the space in your life to be able to get through it. What was your spirituality like prior?
2: Without belaboring the whole thing and boring you with all the details, I will say that you're absolutely right. The book is in many ways about how people uh, deal with their own vulnerability and embrace it and navigate it. I will say without kind of relying too heavily on gender stereotypes, I think it is the case that many men have um, a bit more difficulty doing that perhaps than women and again I don't want to generalize too much but it was certainly I think the case in my situation where I had you know an understanding of what it meant to be a dad a father a man a husband that didn't allow for much uh, vulnerability or uh, weakness and kind of required a certain kind of stoicism that ended up just overwhelming me when things got too tough so to answer uh, the question about the spiritual or personal, uh, journey. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of went to college and became kind of a strident empiricist and an atheist. Uh, when my kids were born, we started going to church primarily to give them some degree of biblical literacy and ethical education. And frankly, just to have them in in a place for an hour where they weren't being stimulated by electronics and getting every desire catered to, but I was still pretty cynical about the whole thing and I didn't really spend that much time on a daily basis tending to my spiritual needs, if you will. Uh, I wasn't a very dedicated athlete of the spirit, as uh, as Gandhi said at one point. So the crisis hit. My son was diagnosed with this crazy disease. It threw my whole family, my whole life, you know, overboard into this sea of chaos. And as things were completely slipping out of control, and it was affecting you know, my marriage and my work and, uh, you know, my mental health. I did indeed embrace the practice of meditation. And I'm here to tell you two things. One, meditation definitely helped me. And I uh, think that it would help almost anybody. But it didn't solve all my problems. Sometimes people think of it as a cure-all. And, you know, it feels like anybody who meditates for 20 minutes or more turns around and writes a book about it as you know that it it saved their life with me it it got the you know part of the way there but not the full way there and ultimately um you know as crises kept piling up of various flavors i needed to supplement that with therapy with psychotropic medications and you know other kind of basic things like working out and uh drinking less and all that stuff and so one of the kind of the my personal (laughs) learning moments was that you can do various forms of uh, self-help or spiritual improvement. You can hopscotch from one to another from time to time. You don't have to feel like cheating on your girlfriend if you decide to shift from one modality to another. Oh my God, that's um, funny.
0: And,
2: and, yeah, you just <laughs> yeah. you need to be doing something though. You know, find out what works for you. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I'd like, you know, just marriage counseling, for instance, right? I, I've been to five marriage counselors over the course of my 15-year marriage. I'll probably end up with a sixth before, um, before I die. But you know, people go to marriage counseling and they try for like two sessions and they say, this isn't working, I'm done. And maybe they end up just getting divorced. Maybe they end up just sticking in a marriage that could be improved with counseling. And, you know, I mean, to me, that's kind of heartbreaking. There's if you're if you're willing to do the work or at least some of the work or at least make an effort, um, you can frankly, you can get points for just making an effort. Can make a difference. And I think people kind of give up on themselves a little too easily sometimes because they think that one particular mode of of self-help isn't working, or one particular mode of spirituality or spirituality practice disillusions them in some way. And so they just get cynical about the whole thing. Whereas I'm all for hopscotching and web surfing and finding out what works for you and trying something new if you just kind of get bored with the thing you were doing six months ago.
1: Yeah totally agree i don't know for you but i know for me as much as you would love to work on your relationships it really starts it's really that you change you then everything around you kind of changes too
2: sure absolutely you know i mean for me it's just about the basic very basic things in fact i was in a group meditation once uh, sangha and everybody around me was frankly a Better meditator. I'm, it's not hard for me to say they might have been better people. Okay. And what they were talking about was like this you know, crusading feeling of, of that, you know, how are we going to spread meditation to the world? And what should our relationship be with the transcendental meditation people vis a vis the mindfulness people? They had big, big plans. And I just raised my hand and I said, guys, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be part of this project to save the world, but I'm ultimately just a guy trying to keep his shit together. My, my goals here are to try to reduce the frequency and the intensity of my negative interactions with other people around me and with myself.
1: Yeah. So you can start levitating maybe, you know, once you get all that together.
2: Yeah. Next week. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> I really value people that just own their shit. And I felt like you owned your shit in your book. You're like, I was a total dick.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: I always tell people there's always a a blessing in the lesson. And sometimes when we're in the lesson, in the storm, it's really hard to see what the blessing is going to be. And of course, we know that the blessing, ultimately, it was about your son and him finding a, a cure and being healthy today. But also, it sounds like through your son's illness, you shed a lot of that ego and you really got in tune with your soul
2: Yes, I I appreciate that. I will say that I'm still a work in progress, man. And I still backslide.
0: Progress, not perfection. We all are. I'm still a dick, too.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing I'll say, and God, you can find plenty of people to agree with me here, is that this being a dick thing wasn't just because I got hit with this crazy diagnosis, right? It was kind of like, it was always there in some limited capacity. But what the diagnosis did was kind of strip away some of the constraints and, and etiquette that uh, had kind of kept me in check before and kind of exposed everything, exposed all the cracks, ultimately led me to take the steps I needed to take to try to address that fact. Uh, again, it was very involved, multifaceted approach. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very important for people, for me and for people like me, to understand that, you know, sometimes when I don't even mean it, you know, I can sound like there's kind of a parenthetical you idiot at the end of every sentence just because that's how I, you know the tone of my voice or whatever and I really don't mean to do that I but then can happen anyway so good news is it's not hard for me to apologize I've gotten so good at apologizing I, I can do with <laughs> Professional but,
1: apologizer.
2: <laughs> yeah yeah no I've got a million of them
1: well add uh, that to your bio
2: <laughs> yeah yeah I should put that on my LinkedIn
1: page you know yeah the, but the you know apologize. what oh my gosh I must say that I totally appreciated you giving Felicia, your wife, the credit that was due. I felt her pain as a mother. And I also love that you really could see that women do have this mother instinct. You know, we do. We're like psychic as shit when it comes to our kids. And I know for myself too, like you can mess with me, but when it comes to my kids, that mama bear to defend and, and protect and go to the ends for my children. Everything goes out. It's just an instinct. It's primal. I kind of saw that too, how that would have happened. And that would have also put a strain on your marriage.
2: You're absolutely right. And it's not just my wife, but it is often the case uh, when uh, there's a family dealing with a child's health crisis, the mother becomes the primary caregiver and the, also the primary advocate for the child, a patient, when uh, you're dealing with all the stuff and the paperwork and all the craziness. So she was great at that. And many, it wasn't just once, it was like several steps along the way from kind of insisting that we go to an immunologist to begin with, to get the proper test done, to doing most of the research, and then really pushing me in many cases, even you know against my own hesitation resistance and resistance and stubbornness, that we did indeed have to move from New York to Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, because that was the Duke University Hospital was the best, if not the only place where we had a good chance of a successful outcome with our son and bone marrow transplant he got, to being there and at his side during some of the toughest moments of the whole process. And while at the same time, kind of dealing with this husband who I was support. I mean, I wasn't a complete loser. Okay. I did what I needed to do. I kept working. I kept insurance there, I, participated quite a bit, but, you know, there was plenty of times where I was adding to her stress as much as supporting her. And, you know, she, she handled it all well. And I will say this, she would want me to say this if she were here, you know, she had a whole other layer of strength or a whole other source of strength, which was her faith. She is faithful and uh, religious to a degree that I'm not, although I've kind of evolved in that direction too. But some of what she does a little bit over the top and you know, kind of created on my nerves at times. And that's all <laughs> true. But you can't deny, both in our particular case, but also broadly speaking, many, many people who practice uh, religion do find a tremendous source of strength and comfort and solace and, and power to accomplish these kind of superhuman things that you wouldn't think uh, normal people under extreme stress would be able to do. So that was all one big piece of it. And I'm happy to say also that she's kind of refashioned uh, her professional life now uh, to be a leader and a patient advocate for uh, our disease, our disease, the disease um, (laughs) my son had. And is launching a a very successful nonprofit that's that's doing wonderful things on the research and patient advocacy. front. So I'm I'm really, really proud of her.
0: That is what we love to hear. It's all, you know, Shanna and I love to talk about turning pain into purpose. Yes, you yeah. took that pain, and so did you. You took that pain, and you know your purpose was to write this book and to be on this podcast. And her was to start that nonprofit. So that's yeah. that. Les- the blessing in that lesson, I will say, I used to work at Children's Hospital. I worked with very ill children. Most of them didn't have a chance of living at all. And it, every day that I walked into that building, I had to just prepare myself. That energy in that hospital is so loving and so amazing. But at the same time, if you don't protect yourself, it eats you up. Seeing those parents in those units, there's nothing worse than seeing a child sick. There's nothing worse than seeing a parent that feels helpless, watching a child feel so much pain. I could never make it through, especially like the NIC unit without bawling. And I think every single day that I left that hospital, I cried in my car on the way home or prayed for those kids.
2: Well, Mandy, bless you for the work you did and how you're kind of channeling that now. And I would only hope that you shared whatever whatever tools you are using with your audience. And I'm sure you have. You're absolutely right, Mandy. The nurses that we came across were so just off the charts altruistic. You know, we were in a unit where the patients were there for months. Okay, so it it wasn't just like being in an emergency room where yes, you see an intense situation, but the patient kind of moves on within you know a certain number of hours to the spot. You know these nurses are there every day, bonding very intensely with these children and their families, and they really appreciate those relationships. On the one hand, it makes their work that much more meaningful, but on the other hand, you're absolutely right. There's plenty of times they have to go into the supply closet and ball their eyes out because you have to be on, right? You have to be able to, I don't know how the people do it, have to be able to walk into room fifteen fourteen and share the great news that this child is going to be released and cured and then walk five feet into the next room and, and deal with the fact that this yeah. child's transplant has failed and we've got to talk about hospice care for an eight-year-old and still be there and be present and not let the one situation bleed into the other. And that is, yeah, I
1: couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I'd be crying all day.
2: Yeah, there was one particular nurse who'd been there quite a while, long time, who'd come from like working in a refugee camp in Afghanistan. And you know, prior to that, she had been in uh, you know, war zones in Cambodia. So for her, being on a pediatric bone marrow transplant unit was kind of like you know, uh, a walk in the park. But there's there's just amazing people who give of themselves in ways that I just, I just couldn't. I guess I'm just too weak or too selfish or both.
1: God bless them. You know, I wanted to talk about Lydia. So mm-hmm. through all this, you had another child who was just a few years older than Sebastian, your son, who was sick. Mm-hmm. And I loved when you talked about how She too kind of mothered him in some way or cared for him.
2: It's really interesting, both in our situation and in the, you know, there's studies of this. This isn't just a personal story. We were worried when we brought, when we had to move down to North Carolina and we knew there was going to be this intense experience coming down the pike. Would it be too traumatic for our daughter, who is only four years older than our son? So we're talking at the time he was four, she was eight. Would this be too much to see her brother like this, to see us all torn up, to possibly deal with a bad outcome? Okay, kids die there. Uh, It doesn't happen that often, but it happens often enough that, you know, you have to talk about it. So would would it be better if we left her behind with one of her grandmothers? And the doctors, who oftentimes, you know, give you both sides of an argument or give you kind of qualified answers or disclaimers about everything, were unequivocal about this. I said, no, 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 you want her there. We all need to be there. She's going to do wonders for him. And I thought that was kind of like, <clears throat> yeah, okay, having the sibling around is good for the kid. That kind of sounds like new age, ooga booga, woo woo stuff. <laughs> but then we saw it in action. I'm telling you, there was a day when he, my son, they have to give you heavy duty chemotherapy for this particular procedure. And he was in the middle of it and he looked like, you know, a wreck. Lying on that bed, uh, it's hard for me to even talk about it now. And we thought, you know, this is just not. This is this is. I hope this is the low point because how much lower could it get? And then his sister comes in the room, and suddenly he perks up and wants to start playing Hungry Hungry Hippos. And it's like the whole acting sick thing was just, you know, a let's pretend thing. Uh-huh. And there were many, many stories of that where kids are like comatose or. Is not responding. Not you know looking really bad, and the doctor sometimes literally calling for the sibling, get the sister in here. It has this this really profound effect. So yes, she was uh, wonderful, perhaps even life saving.
0: It's interesting that you share that because I was in a coma in ICU in 2013 from an asthma attack, and they didn't let my children come visit me. And then they said that my organs were failing and I was dying and that it was just a matter of time. They brought my children in to visit me. And within hours, I was off the ventilator and completely, you know, restored.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you to your family for helping save you. We need you. So I'm glad that you're still here.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. So we recently had on a Dr. Ross Carter, and he is all about stem cell therapy and stem cell nanoparticles. And that's what he's dedicated his life to. And uh-huh. you just happened to fall in synchronicity right with our interview that we just had with him recently.
2: Yeah, it's great. One of the wonderful things about this interview I got to say, guys, is that what I'm about to say usually comes within the first 30 seconds It's like the first question, but now we've kind of talked and got to know each other a little bit and kind of laid it all out there. And
0: we want to know about your soul we... first. Now let's yeah, get into it. Yeah, exactly. Like
2: the... <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I hope I've uh, adequately credentialized myself on a spiritual basis, but yeah. So what happened with our whole thing is that uh, our son was born with a monogenetic mutation on his X chromosome that led to a primary immune deficiency which meant on a day-to-day basis on a practical level that his body couldn't fight off a lot of bacterial and fungal infections that quote, unquote, normal people can fight off. As a result, he spent the first six months of his life in and out of hospitals with mystery fevers and infections. And when he was ultimately diagnosed, we got the news that he was either going to have to try to live with this disease through a combination of daily medicines, a combination of that plus environmental restrictions of certain degree, he would indeed still catch um, potentially lethal infections, you know, a couple of times every few years and be in and out of hospitals on sort of pretty uh, clear terms that he probably wasn't going to live past 25 or 30. At some point, the medicines weren't going to do the job. His organs were going to take such a beating from the infections. The one and only known curative treatment for this condition, which is called CGD, by the way, don't ask me why. I can answer, but it's just boring. Is... Stem cell transplant, more commonly referred to as a bone marrow transplant. I think better understood as an immune system transplant. Basically, he had to undergo this very intense medical procedure, which has been around for a while, but not that long, where you basically annihilate the existing immune system with chemotherapy, basically kill off all the white blood cells, plus other kinds of cells. If you're lucky enough to find a match, you transfuse those into the body, That's the transplant part. And then, if everything's been done right, and it's an extraordinarily delicate process, these new donor cells will attach in the bone marrow and start reproducing and engrafting. And over time, painstakingly, a year later, you'll have a new functional immune system. So, that basic thing has been how transplants have been done for, you know, 30 or 40 years. But With my son's case, we couldn't find a matched donor. His sister wasn't a match, be the match database didn't come up with any matches that had to do in large part with the fact that he was a mixed race, mixed ethnicity. So there's just a much more rare HLA typing. So we had to go this kind of route of last resort, which is one of the most profound and uh, hopeful developments that's taken place in the last few decades which has been pioneered at Duke, which is a stem cell transplant using unmatched umbilical cord blood. So basically, when another child was born, I think in the year 2010, the parents had donated the umbilical cord to the Carolinas' cord blood bank. And because those umbilical cord blood cells are so incredibly malleable, even more so than adult stem cell white blood cells, they were able to work even though they weren't nearly as perfect a match as you'd want them to be. And now there's this whole world of umbilical cord blood uh, transplantation that they're exploring for uses with other uh, diseases and other conditions. The technique is being used for potential treatments for diseases disease like cerebral palsy, possibly for autism. Now, these wouldn't necessarily be transplants. They might be using, in many cases, they're using the patient's own uh, umbilical cord blood But still, the the technique and the technology is just breathtaking. Frankly, that's one of the messages of the book that we're in an age of just unbelievable progress with medical science, and we should be embracing that and celebrating it. You know, people run down the healthcare system. And of course, there's issues with accessibility and affordability. I'm not saying that's not the case. But, uh, and people are very cynical about big pharma. I get that. Uh, But nevertheless, we really do need to be kind of celebrating and honoring the medical professionals who are making these things happen. I mean, folks, we came up with a very, very functional vaccine for COVID within nine months using this breakthrough technique of messenger RNA. That is amazing. And I think Dr. Carter, your other guest, would be able to speak much more intelligently and fluently about all these other breakthroughs that we can be expecting to happen. So there's cause for hope. I mean, obviously, the world gives you reasons to be disillusioned and disappointed, and oftentimes we give ourselves reasons to be disillusioned and disappointed. But you know, one of the really, really inspiring things, and one of the things that gave me strength for the journey during this whole thing, was just seeing this beautiful process of uh, medical research and uh, and science that is changing lives
1: and saving lives.
2: Absolutely. I mean, totally it's unbelievable. Lives.
1: And now when we were talking to Dr. Carter, some of it, you know, a lot of insurances don't cover the stuff. Some things are not FDA approved yet, you mm-hmm. know, and that is heartbreaking. You know, sometimes I hear like so-and-so is sick and they have to go to Mexico to get healed. You know, stuff like this because of red tape with, you know, FDA or this and that. And that breaks my yeah. heart too. Yeah. You
2: know. I would not put myself forward as a healthcare policy expert, but I will say this, just from the perspective of somebody who knows quite a bit about the rare disease uh, community and and the rare disease population, I am very much in support of more relaxed, compassionate use policies uh, when it comes to patients being able to take more experimental drugs, just because I know from personal experience, there's plenty of patients who can either (laughs) make a decision should I try to live with the disease? that's probably going to kill me at some point, or should I try to cure the disease with a treatment that might kill me? And that's a very personal decision. That's a decision that I think every patient or parent of patient should be able to make under informed circumstances, but you're never going to have perfect information with rare diseases because just by definition, they're so rare. There aren't that many patients to study. It's not like lung cancer where the, you know, when the Surgeon General came out with their definitive study about that. There are you know, thousands and thousands of papers and longitudinal clinical studies. With rare diseases, you don't have a lot of patients. You don't have a lot of data. You don't have a lot of information to base an, even an informed decision on. So who takes responsibility for that? And ultimately, I think it is your body. Who owns our bodies? We own our bodies. And we should be able to make most of the decisions about that.
0: I had this vision while you were talking, like this umbilical cord. It's really, truly like this godline, just full of like this special love. <laughs> yeah, it's so fascinating. I think, unfortunately for me, like my my youngest daughter, six, when they brought it to my attention, it was actually going to cost me money to like store it, and so yeah. I was confused about that, and so immediately just. I wish I had, it had been presented to me before I was in the hospital giving birth because I could have done some research on it. But as soon as I saw the cost, I was like, no, that like, are you kidding me? Take you it really home and put it in your freezer. freezer? I, I yeah. wanted to, I wanted to I just know. take it home and put it in my freezer and make a yummy shake out of that, in my placenta, but they wouldn't let me.
2: <laughs> so <laughs> you guys, you're absolutely right though. I mean, people have been into the placenta Have been talking about placentas and umbilical cord for a long time, and sometimes the folkloric and the superstitious, there's a reason for it, right? So, again, not being a doctor, but having interviewed many doctors about this, I just want to say you're absolutely right, Mandy. The umbilical cord is this magical apparatus, if you will, that we've kind of dismissed as medical waste uh, for a long period of modern medicine, and now we are learning not just. You know, power is enough to cure people like my son, but might have all sorts of other uh, amazing potential that we're just we're just starting to explore. It's, I mean, just think about this, right? From a immunological point of view, our immune systems attack foreign things. That's what they do. They perceive foreign presences and they go and attack them. A baby in a mother's stomach, a mother's uterus, is a foreign presence, right? So the mother should kind of, on a basic level, be attacking the baby but they don't, and the baby's immune system doesn't attack the mother's. So what's going on there? And that kind of is the key to some of the mysteries of these umbilical cord stem cells that make them so, uh, again, malleable and amicable, which is one of the reasons why when you're transplanting patients like my son, with umbilical cord blood so you have a less incidence of this phenomenon called graft versus host disease which happens with a lot of transplant patients post-transplant even if it's been a successful transplant at some point the new cells will attack the old cells in the body and that can lead to very serious complications but that doesn't happen that much with umbilical cord transplants because of the very kind of miraculous magical thing wondrous thing of this umbilical cord blood The only other thing I'll tell you, though, is that, yes, people these days have an opportunity to kind of store their own kids' umbilical cord blood, and it costs money, and if people want to do that, that's fine, but one of the things that we're kind of advocating is for the growth of public donated cord blood banks. Our son was saved not from his own umbilical cord that we stored, but because, you know, somebody in North Carolina, because they have one of the most advanced cord blood banks, donated their kids' blood and the more people who do that again the more lives we'd be able to save
0: i mean yeah if we're all going to get storage units for a couch and some dressers and for <laughs> you know 100 bucks a month uh, i think this is a little bit more important people <laughs>
1: yeah
2: exactly
0: um, can
1: anybody donate theirs
2: it depends it, on what state you're in
1: that's a miracle and the science and the technology today is a miracle And then, like, thinking about all the things that you do, you just must think sky's the
2: limit. Again, one of the things that this experience did was humble me in a big way, right? I was Mm -hmm. kind of, like, one of the smartest kids in class, and I always thought I knew everything, And uh, right? But one of the things that this experience taught me was that I didn't know that much. I didn't know much about, you know, the basics of the human body, right? Because my body had been working, so, you know, I yeah. I treat it like I treat my cell phone. Right? As long as the thing works, I, re- I don't really need to know exactly right, how it works. It is on my iPhone. I mean, it just works, right? So, the immune system, I'd never dealt with any hiccups with an immune system. So, I didn't need to know anything about it. But the more I had to learn, the more I became fascinated about it, the more I, again, became humbled by not just how much I didn't know, but how much there is yet to discover. And that's kind of the same sensibility that we're trying to take with this uh, little TV show. Proof is out there on the History Channel. By the way, our second season is going to be debuting at the end of August. um, So there'll be more episodes for you. Um, All right. You got some proof. proof? Yeah, we got some proof. Okay. We need to understand that not everything is known. That most of what was thought to be scientifically uncontrovertible truth just thirty or forty years ago has been completely upended. Um, yeah. That's what that's what scientific Physics. research does, right? It's the, yeah. it's the overturning of, it. of other things As we learn more, we kind of push back the darkness of ignorance. our learning, but we have to have a humble approach to the thing. I like
1: that the humble approach to it, but it just seems like the possibilities are endless.
2: Yeah, and I think I think we need to also remain curious, right? I mean, uh, I yeah. I'm 50 years old. Okay. But I don't feel like I'm tired of learning or tired of exploring or tired of being surprised by things. In fact, that's the only thing that kind of, you know, keeps me going is the idea that there's so much more out there to learn so many questions to be asked, even if you don't get an answer.
0: Yeah. When's your birthday?
2: Is this one of those social engineering things? You're going to go steal my bank account now? no um,
0: I, don't give me the exact date Get no away. we'd be you- like doing astrology <laughs> it's more like that right.
2: <laughs> i'm i'm a libra i'm a libra You're... on the cusp Ooh, of Scorpio.
0: okay
1: i like libras my son I, I have four kids and one in every season and i
0: have a libra yeah i feel like god tried to like blow like you know i need burning bushes i needed burning bushes i'm like you know okay this faith thing this god thing okay all right maybe you know, I don't know. And so my whole life, I was just like, God would just like give me a burning bush. And I'm like, no, that's not good enough. It wasn't big enough. It wasn't burning high enough. So no. then he freaking gave me another one. Then he knocked my ass off my pedestal with alcoholism and humbled me greatly. Then he, you know, was like, oh, really? You're still not going to get it? Okay, well, let me just knock you on your ass again. And another burning bush would come and I'd ignore it. And I feel like my whole life, I had these things presented to me that were like clearly. Mandy, there's something bigger than you. There's a higher power out there. There's a a source energy. And it took something very, very personal to hit me, to knock me down to a place where I was like, okay, I I get it now. I get it. And it it put me into a place to realize that science and spirituality are are merging and and marrying each other. And I was able to put my ego aside and just surrender and say, I am yours. I kind of feel like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of feel like Maybe you could relate to that.
2: I can relate to that, but I would still submit that there's plenty I could learn from you. You have a lot to teach people from from what you've been through and and what you've kind of devoted yourself to subsequently. But I also want to ratify what you just said. This whole kind of age-old conflict and juxtaposition that we put between spirituality and science is kind of a fiction that we build uh, in ourselves, and that, that kind of space is prepared for us. But it's it's not that impossible to transcend that. You know, I think it was Freeman Dyson, uh, a great a great scientist and thinker, who said that uh, you know God God exists, and his greatest gift to us is technology. And mm. you know, if you start from that presupposition, a lot of things kind of fall into place, and it helps you know understand that. Again, even though we have all these tools, and they're increasing every day and we're putting them to wonderful uses, there's still so much that we don't know. And, you know, I was there at my son's bedside the moment he was getting his transfusion and all the medical professionals said, we've done everything we can, but at this point we think it's gonna work. We don't know. Sometimes we think it's gonna work and it doesn't. Sometimes we think it doesn't work and it does. And so what are you left with there, right? You could cross your fingers and just kind of be superstitious Or you could try to call on a higher power, whatever name you want to give your spiritual source of strength, and try to help get you through to that next phase and kind of stand on that edge between what's known and what isn't known.
0: It's been a scary moment. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. And your book brings so much to to the world. I mean, I love that you dedicated it to people that have had it tougher. Mm. I feel like it's not just for people that sat in the hospital. I feel like everyone could get something out of it. It's, it's not just for people that have been through something similar, there's something in it for everyone. I want to say also that I think it's so important that that you bring to the table through your book that this kind of stuff can cause trauma on marriages and how to handle that. And it can cause trauma on your physical body and your mental health because you're so focused on that child or that patient that you forget about yourself in it. And it's very stressful. And what it's doing to your immune system and what it's doing to your body and your mind and your marriage and your job, I mean, God bless you guys that you made it out on the other side and that you've been vulnerable with sharing that it was, it was really messy and it was really hard and look where you're at today. So
1: good job. Well, we
2: tried, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, I tried to put it out there and I tried to make it interesting from the reader's perspective, but you're right. I mean, the motivation for the whole thing was this, I kind of bristled at this perceived myth that every parent who has a sick kid suddenly becomes a saint. I didn't know how that worked. That's kind of what the motivation was. And and you're absolutely right that just like our bodies have immune systems that fight off these constant assault of pathogens and bacteria and viruses, in a similar way, we need to have kind of an analogous immune system for the mind. And that doesn't just mean having one means of coping, right? The body's immune system has hundreds of different kinds of cells to deal with hundreds of different kinds of uh, pathogens. And in a similar way, that's why I was saying, you know, maybe some, you know, some a combination of therapy and exercise oh. and uh, spirituality and uh, meditation and antidepressant medication. You need them, all. like I do. Use it all because that's it's, it's it's a system. It's not a it's a it's not a one turnkey solution for anything.
1: How is Sebastian doing? How wh- where is he at today?
2: Yeah. So if you were to meet him, you'd need to be told three times that he had a. Life-threatening disease. I mean, he's yeah. uh, perfectly healthy. He doesn't have to take any medications. He's, uh, you know, enjoying his life to his fullest. And you know, he's gotten into theater uh, these days. That was his, his big kick recently. So he just played uh, President Roosevelt in Andy's musical, it was a little production we did. So he's he's loving life, and that's all we ever wanted is to be able to have for him to have the ability to pursue his, his dreams and his goals let him lead his life on his own terms. He has to be monitored annually for checkups to make sure that uh, the chemo hasn't done some sort of long-term organ damage and make sure that his immune system is still functioning. uh, Like every transplant patient does. But other than that, yeah, he got through COVID just fine. He was not thrilled like most (laughs) kids uh, to wear a mask at school and more than most kids for him. It wasn't like one year. It was, a seventh year of social distancing and quarantining and masks after, you know, six years of that on and off to certain degrees. So today was actually his last day of school and hopefully it'll be his last day of school with a mask.
0: I thought about that during COVID. I thought about, you know, we all wanted to whine and bitch and complain about wearing these masks and social distancing. And I knew families at children's hospital who had been doing that their entire lives with their children. So suck it up.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Welcome to the club. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it was that like at the beginning, you know, kind of like a lot of the people in the immune deficiency world are like, you know, welcome to our world. But, you know, ultimately it's not a good thing. You know, nobody should have to do that. And it's just not how we're meant to interact as a species. I firmly believe we should be socializing. We should be seeing face to face. We should have. Real interpersonal contact, not just on screens. So the next time you interview me, it's going to be in person. Deal. That's what life is ultimately about, is genuine human contact. You want more of that, uh, not Absolutely.
0: Left. Speaking of interviews, if your wife ever wants to come on and talk about her nonprofit she's putting together and her own personal experience around this, we would love to have her as well. And now it's time for Break That Shit Down.
2: Yeah. Thank you for that opportunity. I first just want to say that I'm in no position to be giving anybody advice. I'm a guy who's just trying to deal with life on its own terms and try to get through the day. We're all struggling. We're all imperfect. We all fail. But we all also have wonderful potential to surprise ourselves and to give and share love and to appreciate the fact that any given moment has the potential for an eternity of joy.
1: Thanks for sharing your soul and your story with us today. We appreciate it. And if you have any weird UFO stories that you want to share, you can always call it sense of soul. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Where can our listeners uh, get your book, find your book, learn more about you?
2: Okay. So you can check out my website, Miguelsancho.net. Miguelsancha.com, I think, was taken already by a Spanish model. Who I also recommend you check out. But my yes, book is cute. <laughs> um, the book published by Penguin, so it's on Amazon, it's on BarnesandNoble.com, in every uh, bookstore on the planet Earth. No, that's not true. But any, any good bookstore will be able to order it for you. Yeah. So you know, buy it like you buy most books. I'm told to encourage people to not just go to Amazon. Apparently, you know, there's reasons that we don't want to give Amazon every single dollar on planet Earth. But, you know, it certainly is available on Amazon and uh, on Audible, too.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, You can listen to his lovely voice. Yes. If you like the baritone, you
2: can get about six and a half hours of uninterrupted (laughs) Miguel Sancho baritone reading the book.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to be really vulnerable to wrap this up and tell you that I text Shanna right before we got on and said, I'm nervous. And I'll tell you why your resume blew my mind. And I was like, wait, we're going to interview a guy who's been interviewing people forever. And then I, I heard this voice in my ear that said, just be authentic, just be you. And, and that's what I brought to the table. And we had a beautiful conversation and that was all my ego and you have been such a pleasure. And I, and Shannon, I feel so blessed every day to see guests like you come across our email to come on and give us an opportunity to talk with you so thank you
2: absolutely and don't let that intimidation i'm mean, believing i've met plenty of people with awesome resumes who are bona fide idiots so you know it's, uh, <laughs> doesn't, yeah, yeah you guys are great
0: thank you so much for coming on since the soul
2: all right lots of love <laughs>